0: We'll read verses 1 through 8, and tonight we're going to look at Revelation 1 verses 4 through 8. I was talking with someone uh, last time, uh, we were in Revelation, and uh, we were talking about, well, how much do you preach? How much will you cover? And and I told him, I said, well, this Sunday night I plan to cover about three verses. And he's like, oh, we're going to be in Revelation for some time. And uh, I can understand why he would think that. But... uh, you know, it will ebb and flow. We, we will have greater portions of Scripture we'll look at together at some times and then uh, lesser portions of Scripture. So with that being said, we'll begin reading verse 1. It says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Him, to show His servants things which, which must shortly take place, and He sent and signified it by His angel to His servant John." Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. So again, let's pray. Lord, we ask now for your blessing On the reading and preaching of your word, we ask that you would teach us by your spirit. Help us to understand these things so that we may be encouraged, convicted where necessary, and strengthened to walk with you, with our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, if you're not here, last time we were in Revelation, we considered uh, the background of this book given to John by the Lord Jesus and the angel as we saw there in chapter 1. And so we said that Revelation, more than likely, it's my conviction at least, that it was written prior to A.D. 70, the year A.D. 70. One of the modern common dates given is A.D. 95, but we considered another equally uh, legitimate view, and that is that it was written prior to A.D. 70, And so we looked at chapters 11 and chapter 17. In chapter 11, we find that the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. And uh, that indicates that it was before A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And also we identified one of the kings mentioned in Revelation 17, and that was Nero. And Nero died in A.D. 68. And so we have here the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, the Greek word there, of Jesus Christ. As far as the context goes, we saw that these are some of the things or the things we are told in verse 1 that will shortly take place from John's perspective at the time that he wrote this. And in verse 3 at the end, it says the time is near. And so then what was the context? Remember, there was... Roman persecution as well as the persecution of the Jews upon the early first century Christian apostolic church. And so we considered that. And while it is true that sometimes we read Revelation, if we read it, um, it can be a little mysterious to us. And we wonder, well, what's going on here? And we need Old Testament background. If you note there what it says in verse three, blessed is he reads it and uh, for us not to read it. We miss a blessing, and we need to do so prayerfully, even if we don't understand everything. And even though I take that view, which we said is called the preterist or partial preterist view, um, that does not mean, it does not follow that this book no longer applies to Christians today. It most certainly does. And so as we think about it, you know, as far as that goes, uh, when Christ is speaking to the seven churches... Usually at the end, he will say, he who has an ear, this is in chapter 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is, plural. Now this one right here in chapter 2, verse 7, is written to the church of Ephesus. That's a church, singular in Ephesus. But Christ there says, let him who hears what the Spirit says to the church is, So it's to go out broader. The message to Ephesus applies to all the churches. That's the point. And if it applies to all the churches in those days, it applies to every church in the whole Christian era. And so as we approach Revelation and consider it to have been written at that early date, let us not forget that. So then the question for us tonight is, um, what is it that the church of Jesus Christ needs at such a time? A time when the church would undergo persecution and oppression and resistance by the unbelieving Jewish people in Palestine at that time and the, Roman, the hostile uh, Roman government. And what do we need today when we find ourselves faced with troubling times, uh, even times of persecution, oppression, ridicule, all of these things from whomever. What is it we need? Well, we find that here in verses 4 through 8. And uh, I think what is happening is that, that God is preparing His people for what is to come. And before He opens John's eyes or reveals through John what is going to happen? He's reminding his people of three things here. Very important for us to note. So we'll talk about those tonight. What is it that we need uh, to persevere and survive well uh, such times? Well, first of all, we need the strength to persevere. And I think we see that here in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Um, so again, this is to God's people, to the people of Christ. And remember, Christ has already said during his earthly ministry in John fifteen, five, without me, you can do nothing. So we need the strength of Christ to walk with him, and especially during times uh, such as were happening uh, during the writing or just after the writing of this uh, book. We call Revelation. So it's addressed to the seven churches there in verse 4. Well, who are these seven churches? If you look down at verse 11, we're told uh, they're the ones mentioned there. They're in Asia, what we call today Asia Minor, uh, part of the Roman Empire, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These were actual, literal physical churches in the 1st century. You know, Paul helped to establish the church at Ephesus. He left Timothy at Ephesus to pastor that church. He wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy to the church at Ephesus where Timothy was, and in Revelation 2 we have another letter to the church at Ephesus. So actually there are four letters written to Ephesus because the other one is what? Ephesians, right? And so these were real churches. And so this was written to our brothers and sisters in Christ from the first century in the year of our Lord. And so we'll talk more about those churches as we move through Revelation. So we do, we need the strength to persevere. And I think this is indicated here in verses 4 and 5. If you see there in verse 4, halfway through, it says, Grace to you and peace from Him. And it goes on. You know, this is a typical salutation found in the New Testament. When an apostle would write a letter, he would often say, grace to you and peace. It's a greeting. It's a salutation. That's how we begin the worship service. Um, we, we do that in the name of Christ. And there's a reason for that. We need to be reminded of that. From who it is that we receive grace and peace. And God's people who would undergo the things mentioned in this book need to be reminded of it. This is not filler. You know, If you're a student or have been a student and you've had to write a term paper, the teacher might say, "Okay, class, it needs to be 11 to 14 pages. And maybe all you've got is nine. And so you have filler in that paper. You quote verbatim pages from a book and then you summarize it. Well, God doesn't need filler. God doesn't use filler. Every word in here is given by him. And so there's a reason it starts off like that. Think about it. Grace. What is the grace of God? Well, um, again, this is a typical uh, salutation. And men have defined the grace of God as the unmerited favor or kindness of God. Perhaps you've heard that. Another one is God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, J.I. Packer said the grace of God is love, God's love, freely, freely, Shown toward guilty sinners contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. We don't deserve God's gift, which is his grace, but he has shown his grace to us. Further, J.F. again says the grace of God is the source of the forgiveness of our sins, the motive for the plan of salvation and is the guarantee of the perseverance of the saints. So if you are suffering because you are a Christian, do you think it's important to be reminded of that grace? The grace that is the source of our forgiveness from God, the motive from God for the plan of salvation, and the guarantee that we will persevere as the saints of God. Of course it is. And then he mentions the peace of God in the original here. uh, This refers to two things in the New Testament, the peace of God It refers to harmony, and it refers to tranquility. And so if we're talking about harmony, that really is a reference, the um, vertical reference. That is the relationship between ourselves and God. In Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we who were once at war with God, we who were His enemies have received peace now. A peaceful, completely restored union and fellowship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And we receive that once we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But from that, often will flow to the Christian what Paul says in Philippians 4-7 is that peace that passes all understanding. That peace that is like that still water where that bass is swimming underneath its surface. And so we need to be restored to fellowship with God. We have been through faith in Jesus Christ, and that brings peace with God. He's not our enemy. He is our Heavenly Father now, and He has our best interest in mind, no matter what it is we're going through. And because of that, we may suffer in this life, but we may suffer well with God's peace. Even like Stephen in the early church in Jerusalem, who, because he was a Christian, suffered martyrdom in the name of Christ. And what does he do? He speaks boldly. He has confidence in God and His message. But even at the end, after they're stoning Him, and as they are killing Him, in Acts 7 and verse 60, he prays and he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. You see, he's at peace. He knows where he's going. And so death has been conquered for him, And he even intercedes for those who are killing him, praying that God would forgive them. And that will uh, lead us here in a moment to something else in our text. But also as far as uh, grace and peace, we have their source. It says there in verse four, from him who was and is and who is to come. This is a reference to God in general, probably God the Father. And this refers to God's eternality. You know, back in uh, Exodus 3, there's Moses at the burning bush. And Moses says, who, whom shall I say? Shall send me? And he says, God says, I am. The verb to be. I'm the God who is the living one, the eternal one. And we have a reference here to that. The one who is and was and who is to come. The eternality of God But also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, we do not believe there are nine persons in the Godhead. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, But the number seven, as you may know, in Scripture often refers to completeness or fullness. And that goes all the way back to the days of creation in Genesis 1. When God was done, when the days of creation were full and so forth, he rested on that seventh day. And so that whole time frame was complete and full. And so... Here we have this reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, from the one who even fills us with Himself, God the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse five, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And so we have here reference of or two the Trinity, the one who supplies us uh, with this grace and peace that we need in such times. Jesus here is called the faithful witness. The word witness can also mean martyr. And Jesus was faithful, wasn't he? Even unto his death. Philippians 2 talks about that. He was faithful to the end. And it says here, the firstborn from the dead. Now, why do we need to be reminded that Jesus was faithful to the end, even though it meant death for him, and that he was the firstborn from the dead. Well, that phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture. Paul alludes to it uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 to show that Christ is the first fruit. His resurrection is the first fruit. And that means it is our guarantee that we will be raised from the dead at the time of his second coming, raised bodily. And so our Resurrection is inseparably connected with Christ's resurrection. Therefore, we need to be reminded that Christ is the firstborn. Why? Because if we die on account of our faith, and when we die as Christians, our bodies will be resurrected at the last day. Our bodies are headed to the grave right now, where there will be decay unless Jesus comes back first. And so they have this reminder of Christ's victory over the grave. And His victory means that we are victors. Because His victory is our victory, as Romans 6 tells us there. And so He is the firstborn from the dead. And then it says the ruler over the kings of the earth. Well, why would this be important? It's important because when it says He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. It means that Christ is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that his sovereignty extends over every ruler that is on the earth. And the second Psalm, this point is made about the Messiah, the Lord's son. And he has promised this kingdom. And there are those who rise up against him, you know, princes and the rulers of this world. And uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs. In that psalm, we find out that even the rulers of this earth, the magistrates, they are accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, because he is their ruler, they are under his providential guidance. And that does not mean that Jesus approves of everything that they do. But what it means is that he is sovereign over them. We need to remember that, that Jesus is king. Jesus is the one who rules over every other king on this earth. And so as we think about this, we need to understand that Jesus is not only willing and able and faithful to bring about what he has promised. um, He is willing and able and faithful to bring about everything that he will promise in this book. This apocalypse, this unveiling, this revelation come down from heaven through John to the churches of Christ. And so then, as we think about that, it is only with the promised grace and peace of God that we can endure whatever hardships come our way. It is only by the grace of God and the sustaining peace of God that we, like these first century Christians, Can, in the words of Paul, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. Whether it's hardship, whether it's famine and hunger, or fullness, having plenty, Paul tells us there. And so Christ is the supply and source of our strength. We're reminded of that just as these first century Christians were reminded of that here. So there's a second thing we need. That's in verses 5 as well and 6. And uh, if we're we're going to survive and do well uh, and be strengthened under such circumstances as oppression, um, persecution, ridicule, uh, we need to have a focus on the redemptive work of Christ. And as we focus on the redemptive work work of Christ, we are reminded of who we are in Christ. We are reminded of our identity in Christ. When you think about the kingdoms of this world, you know, in one sense, we are citizens of the United States of America. Well, not in one sense. We are those of us who are. But as Paul says in Philippians three, our citizenship is where in heaven, And we're members and citizens, not only of the United States, but of the one and true kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And so how is that possible? Well, it's through what he has done, his work of redemption. So if you look there at verse five, halfway down or so, we have this doxology, this this praise to God and to Christ. It says to him. Who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And so to Jesus, to King Jesus, who loved us and washed us. He is the one who has loved us. And actually in the Greek it's present tense. It's he continues to love us, but He has loved us. And as God says, says elsewhere in Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jesus says there is no greater love than his love. No greater love such as this than one laid down his life for his friends. And that's what we're reminded of here. How has Jesus loved us? He washed us from our sins in his own blood. He loosed us, really, from our own sins. It's guilt. Uh, it's penalty. It's power. And one day its, it's presence will be gone from our lives Forever. And so who are we? We are the blood-bought people of Jesus Christ. We're His bride. He laid down His life for His bride, as Ephesians 5 puts it. We need to remember that because there will be those, again, who say we're nothing, that we're the scum of the earth. But in God's eyes, we are, as it says elsewhere, the apple of His eye. And that means the world better look out if they seek to harm us, His church. Not only that, it says here He's he's made us to be uh, kings and priests to His God and Father. And so we're made to be the kings and priests to His God. Now, this is interesting because this goes all the way back to Exodus 19 where God, He... Delivered his people out of Exodus or in Exodus. Um, He delivered them from Egypt and brought them to the holy mountain. Delivered his law unto them. And as he did it through Moses, he said that they were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the outworking of that we see later as the ceremonial law comes out. He tells them to be holy as he is holy. He establishes the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood would intercede for the rest of Israel. But elsewhere in Scripture, we find out that they were to be a priest unto all the nations. But they failed. They did not accomplish that. And so now that language is applied to the church of Jesus Christ. And that point is important for us to understand. Because I think what is happening in Revelation is that there is this case being made and the prophecies... That are spoken are about the divorce, if you will, that God brings to Israel proper. The Jewish people who did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we're seeing that the church of Jesus Christ is the one that is his true kingdom. That is the one being established, that is the one that will outlive every other kingdom. And so that's important for us to note here as we see that. And of course, 1 Peter 2 picks up on this language. And in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says to us, the church, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so because of the blood that Jesus spilled, because of His death, we are kings and priests unto His Father, unto His God. And as kings, we with Jesus shall judge the world. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and following. We will judge the angels. So these early Christians who suffered the day of judgment, they're going to judge those who persecuted them and martyred them with the Lord Jesus, as will we too. And again, we're priests, as we see here in our text. We have direct access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends that doxology. He says, to his God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so in other words, uh, this Redemption that Jesus has come to accomplish, it will culminate in eternal glory and eternal dominion. The glory of God and the dominion of God. And so, that while the unbelieving world, we should see while the unbelieving world is held hostage under Satan's rule and shackled by the chains of sin. We, the blood-bought people of Christ, have been freed from that rule and those chains in order to declare His praises and be His faithful witnesses in this world unto our death. Christ has not left us, nor has He forsaken us. He has shed His blood for us, which is evidence that He has and continues to love us. He has loved us, and He loves us still. So we need the strength that only God can supply. And we also need to have a laser focus on the redemptive work of Christ. We talked about that this morning. The heart of the gospel. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified. You know, otherwise we'll be like Peter. He's walking on water. He's looking at Jesus. Then he looks down, he takes his eyes off Christ, and he begins to sink. And that happens in our Christian life, in our walk. When we take our eyes off Christ, we take our eyes off of the, the gospel and the heart of the gospel. We might be doing things, but our heart's not in it, and that's why our heart's not in it. It's because we're not being reminded by the Spirit of how Christ has loved us. But we lose our strength for the Christian life as well. And so that's important for us to remember, even today what is the last thing here? I think in addition to these two things, the strength we need and the focus on Christ that we need, um, we see that we should have a confidence in the reign of Christ. First of all, do we really believe that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords? You know, never thought I'd use Elvis as a uh, illustration. One time I saw a clip and he was on stage and Jesus is the king, right? And give credit to Elvis. Someone yelled, Elvis, you're king. He says, no, I'm not going to do it in his voice. But he said, (laughs) no. He said, Jesus is king. And he struggled with his faith a lot during his career. Christ is king. Do we believe that? And if we believe it, do we trust the way in which He rules? That's, that's the issue. That's the question. And so we're reminded of that here. We've got some technical things to work out. Um, but whether we apply this to the first century or the second coming of Christ, we still need to trust in Christ and have confidence in His rule in His reign. You know, part of Christ's work as our Redeemer is... Um, what our Shorter Catechism 23 says, uh, He executes the offices of prophet, priest, and king, both in His estate of humiliation and exaltation. So Christ holds three offices as our Redeemer, prophet, priest, and king. And so I mentioned that because even now, He is reigning at God's right hand. Acts 2 says that. 1 Corinthians 15 says that. Revelation 1.5 says that. And as He rules as king, He is working, he is performing and executing his office as king. And that's part of our redemption too. Not only our prophet and our priest, but our king. And all three of these are represented here. He's given this revelation to John. He's our prophet. Um, He's our great priest. He's the one who has made us priests with him. But also he's our king as we've just seen in verse 5. And so do we have a confidence in his reign? And uh, let me spell this out for us. Hopefully I will and not confuse us too badly. Um, well, it says there in verse 7, take note of this. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him and it goes on. So he is becoming or he is coming with clouds. Now, when you read that, you might think, okay, um, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, at His ascension, He went up to heaven. There's clouds. We're told elsewhere that there was clouds that are going to be with Him at His second coming. For instance, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Now, we do not deny the physical, bodily return and second coming of Jesus Christ. That is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. But I don't think that's what is being talked about here. Um, For instance, when we talk about clouds in Scripture, we have to be careful. We have to note how it's being used. Clouds in Scripture often uh, represent the very presence of God. Uh, For instance, in Exodus 13, 21, uh, you have the cloud by day following Israel. That represents the very presence of God. Of God. And uh, in, the, in the 18th psalm, David gives us that psalm, and he's recounting how he was surrounded by his enemies. And that would be uh, Saul and his men. And then he prays, and then in verses 7 through 15 in Psalm 18, we're told that the earth shook and trembled, and that God was angry. In verse 9, it says, God comes down. After much figurative language in verse 14, God himself is pictured as sending his arrows and scattering the foe that is the enemies of David. Now, God did not literally come down. It's speaking of God's providence uh, on the earth. So he came down in his providence in that way. Um, In Isaiah 19. There's a prophecy against Egypt. You know, the Israelites never could get over Egypt. It seemed they they turned back to them for help and so forth when they should have turned to the Lord, the living God. And so God prophesies and brings this burden against Egypt. And it says there, behold, the Lord rides on a swift what? Cloud. And will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in his presence. In its mist. Well, guess what? God came in his clouds, we should understand it, of judgment when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in and attacked Egypt, as well as the Persians after that. And so as we look at verse 7 here, there are many who see this as the great theme of the book of Revelation. And that theme is the theme of judgment. The judgment of Christ in space, in time, even before His second coming. Christ comes in different ways in Scripture. Um, In fact, hold your finger there and turn to Matthew 24. Because again, Matthew 24, a large portion of it, deals with the destruction of Jerusalem. It deals with the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. And uh, probably, oh, through verse 35 is the discussion about the destruction of Jerusalem 8070. Verse 36 picks up and talks about the second coming. Well, if you look at verse 30, <clears throat> Jesus is talking about these, these signs. Then the sign of the Son of Man, again, this is figurative language, it's prophetic literature the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, so the Son of Man is coming on His clouds, the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. Another sign of the judgment of Christ coming to Jerusalem, I think, in A.D. 70. And uh, if you drop down to verse 34, summarizing these things He's speaking about, Even verse 30. In verse 34, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He's talking about those who are standing in His presence. This generation. They're not going to die until these things about which I've been speaking take place. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Son of Man coming in judgment. And how did he do that? By sending the Roman armies to come and starve the uh, Jewish people and to level their city, to level the temple in AD 70, as we've already talked about before. And so chapter one of Revelation, verse seven, really seems to um, underscore Jesus's language in Matthew 24, the coming of the clouds. Every eye will see him, even they that pierced him. You say, well, every... Every eye will see him. uh, Even they who pierced him. That kind of makes sense. Um, So it could be that when it says every eye, it means every eye that is the ones who pierced him. Or the eyes of those, all the eyes of those who pierced him. It could be that. Then it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Someone might read that and say, okay, it says all the tribes of the earth. Okay, so... All of the tribes, I mean, how would all of the earth know back then when Jesus would come and do this? Come on, uh, Kevin. You know, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have streaming. They didn't have even TV or satellite. So, how could they all know? Well, you need to understand. If you look, it says there, um, all the tribes of the earth. The word earth there is gay, um, not G A Y, but it would be gamma, um, eta, I think. But um, anyway, the word can mean earth, like globe, or land, that upon which you walk, or a region, and it's used both ways in Scripture, and uh, Josephus um, tells us this, if I can find it in my notes. Well, anyway, it's in here somewhere, I've got too many notes. Uh, Josephus tells us that the Israelites referred to Palestine as the land and that the Jews referred to all other lands as the lands. And so what I'm saying is this word earth can be translated of the land. And if that's true, then we could understand it to mean the land of Palestine, those who are in Palestine. And he's talking about the 12 tribes that most frequently refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation it does, I think in chapter 5. But also, it refers to the tribes of the earth. And you have this movement in Revelation from the 12 tribes of Israel to every tongue and what? Tribe and nation. And so the kingdom is spreading, it's moving. That's, That's what's happening and that's what we see. In, in this book. And so um, people might say, well, it's, it's talking about the Romans only because they're the ones who pierced him. Yeah, that's true. They're the ones who pierced Jesus' side. They technically crucified the Lord Jesus, but who turned Jesus over to the Romans? The Jews did. And so in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching to those Jewish men there at Pentecost, and he says, You know, this has all happened by the predetermined counsel, the will of God and his providence, but guess what? You, with your wicked hands, have crucified him, and that's in Acts chapter two, verses twenty-two and following. Okay, so again, he talks about the tribes, and I think in other words, he's talking about that coming judgment in A.D. seventy, the destruction of Jerusalem. And some believe here there's a reference to Zechariah twelve ten, as well as Daniel seven thirteen, and uh, we read that portion of scripture where they would mourn those who pierced the Lord Jesus. We read that scripture earlier in our service. And what is the meaning then? What would it be? Well, it means, I think, that this coming of Christ, coming on its clouds of judgment, not physically and bodily, it's not the second coming, but providentially at at, um, the time of AD 70 and just before that, um, it means... That the coming of Christ in this way was comprehended by them, those about whom uh, verse 7 speaks, those who pierced him, the Jewish people. And um, they would mourn for what they had done. It could have been a temporary mourning, a temporary uh, sorrow, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. Maybe it would lead to a godly sorrow as Paul talks about also in 2 Corinthians 7 where he says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And so they mourn in that way. And if you remember, even in Acts 2, Peter brings this indictment at Pentecost upon those unbelieving Jews and it says they were pricked to the heart. And many of them believed even there in Acts chapter 2. So the text continues And it says, even so, amen, let it be true. Even so, this is going to happen. Amen. And that's where I'm getting this point from. And we need to have this confidence, even though Christ is coming in judgment, even so, let it be true. We are in agreement with it. We recognize it. And it's going to happen. This is what's best. That's what faith says. This is what's best because Jesus knows what's best. And so let us think about it in our day and time. Even if our nation has turned on God and played the harlot with God, not that she was in some covenant like Israel was with God, but blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Sin is a reproach to any people. God does judge nations. Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, Well, if that happens, it is happening, uh, we should say, even so, amen. And trust the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ to perfect and accomplish His holy will from heaven. So if you look there verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord who is and who was and who is to come. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And probably that means that He is the author and creator of all things except sin and that He is going to bring these events to their conclusion. He's going to make them happen. Christ is the one, it says here, who is and who was and who is to come. Christ is unstoppable. He's unchangeable, but he's unstoppable. They tried to kill him, and what happened? He came back out of the ground from his tomb. He was raised. You can't stop Christ and his rule and his reign and performing his holy will. He is the Lord Almighty, the Panto Creator. He's the one who rules over all. Let us not forget that. Even in such times as this. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, this word. We pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives, not to be fearful, but to trust in your wisdom and your complete sovereignty over all the affairs of men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.